Good morning, Church of Omaha. Before we begin, if, uh, if there's anybody saw it in the lobby, come gather to our seats. I want to, uh, this message this morning is one that, I mean, I guess all messages are important, and the word is obviously always important, but the, the message that I feel to preach this morning is something that I think we, we need to hear. We, we need to hear in this season of our lives, in the season of what's going on, um, not just within our country, but within the world. Um, there, there are bigger things at play right now than just political movements and uh, civil unrest and those kind of things. There are spiritual things happening. And so this morning, I really I, I want to bring a message to you that I hope will be somewhat maybe sobering, but, but also encouraging at the same time. So we're going to primarily be reading out of Matthew 24, and you don't have to stand because we're going to be reading quite a few verses throughout this chapter. So just open your Bibles to Matthew 24, and that's mainly where we're going to be coming from. And this morning, I just want to give you a title. It's very simple, one word, and it'll make a lot of sense as we go through the text here. And that's, that one word is simply this, watch. Watch. This word is mentioned many times throughout Scripture, but especially in context to talking about the coming of Christ. So we're going to discuss this morning, watch. So the year was approximately 35 AD, and Tiberius was the emperor of the massive Roman Empire. Rome, at this time, expanded across all of modern-day Europe and beyond. Israel was but a tiny sliver of this enormous empire. And for Tiberius and the Roman Senate, Jesus and his followers were nothing more than a small blip on their radar at the time. Constant persecution and heavy taxation were the order of the day. I can only imagine that the Jewish people were tired. But more specifically, I can only imagine that the disciples had to be tired. Because, see, they were not only under constant threat from the Roman Senate, from the Roman leaders appointed over them, but they were also under constant threat of their own Jewish leaders who wanted nothing more than to stamp them out, to get rid of them. They saw Jesus as nothing more than a threat to their political power. So with all of that in mind, so you have the scene kind of set. Now let's get into Matthew 24. Chapter 24, verse 1 says this, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, often we talk about that prophecies within Scripture usually have an immediate connotation, and they also can have a future connotation as well. And this verse is no different. It's very clear that Jesus was talking about the very near overthrow by the Romans of the Jewish temple, that it would all be destroyed. But Jesus was getting at something even larger, much larger than just the overthrow of the physical temple there in Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of what Jesus talks about next. You see, remember that the Jews being tired and the disciples being under this constant persecution and this constant threat. And the, 
the, the sheer uh, corruption that was going on at the time, not just within Rome, but within the Jewish synagogues as well. And Jesus is telling them, listen, there's coming a day where all of this is going to be overthrown. All of the governments of man, all of the, the, the corruption, all of that is going to be overthrown. Verse 3 we pick up and says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall all these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So now we see what it is we're really going to talk about here. We're not just talking about the temporary overthrow of a physical temple. But what we're really getting at here is what is all of this leading to? What is the signs of the return of Christ and the end of this earthly kingdom? For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That was verse 5, verse 6. And ye shall hear of wars and of rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Now i got to stop right here for a moment. Because you see, for the 24 years that I personally have been in church, I have heard time after time countless different preachers saying that Jesus can return at any moment because verse 5 through 7 are already happening. And that's true. There are wars and rumors of wars. There's famines, pestilence. There's earthquakes in diverse places. Those things, they are happening. So they say, therefore, Jesus can return at any time. But look back at verse 5. Verse 5 says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. While that verse can and does certainly reference people who call themselves a Messiah, who claim to be a Messiah, there is a much more insidious and dangerous thing that happens. Paul says that if any man preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Paul often referred to, and I'm using quotations here, this Jesus that we've preached. What I'm getting at is this. If any man preaches any doctrine contrary to the, what, what the word says, then they are not preaching the Christ of the Bible. A man can stand and say that they are preaching about Christ, but when they change the doctrine, they are not preaching the Christ that is in the word. And this is what Jesus is warning, that there would be many who come, many false Christs, many people who rise up and have false Christ. You see, it's easy for us to spot when someone stands up and says, I am the Messiah, I am Jesus, reincarnate right here before you. Give me all of your money, all of your wealth, and I will give you whatever you want. It's easy for us to see that, to spot that. But what is much more difficult is when we hear preachers who use a lot of Scripture but aren't telling you what the Scripture really is saying who have a lot of verses memorized, but completely change the context of the verse. And they make it fit what they think you want to hear. I think scripture says that in the last days people would heap unto themselves men with itching ears, saying what they want to hear. Let's get back to our text in verse 8. All these are the beginning of, of sorrow. 
You see, they say Jesus can return at any time because verse 5 through 7. But verse 8, right after that, says that all of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Please note that, that phrase right there. Ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Sometimes I fear that we look at persecution and they're like, why do they hate me? Why do they not like me? I just want to be friends. I, would just, I just want them to treat me nice. And Jesus is saying, they don't hate you because of you. They hate you because of me. And if that's the case, then in a way that's a good thing because that means you're representing the name of Christ properly. Because the nature of sin will always kick against the nature of Christ. So don't be offended when they hate you because they hate you for the sake of Christ's name. Verse 10, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. Verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. This verse is a little heavy right here. Listen to what it says. It says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Just because the wickedness of this world is growing and evildoers seem to be prospering, we cannot, we must not let our love wax cold. We have to remember that the enemy is leading these people down a path of destruction. It's hard. Trust me. Sometimes I look at the news or even some of my coworkers or some of the other people and I'm like, how stupid can you be? Like, how do you not see the hypocrisy in what you're doing? How do you not see that the Bible talks about this and how contrary you're being to all of this? Then I have to remind myself that they are being led by sin to a path of damnation and they are completely oblivious to it. And yet in my own flesh, I want to say, man, you're so dumb. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but I died for them. I died for them just like I died for you. And there was a moment in my life, and, I, and please, I'm not trying to be crass by saying they're dumb because I'm not meaning they're really dumb. But what I am saying is they're being deceived. They're being deceived by a world that's full of lies and they can't see the truth that is in front of them. And guess how they see that truth? By you. By me. We are supposed to be the light that shows them the truth. But we can't be that light if we allow our love to wax cold because iniquity is abounding in this world. You see, we cannot let our love begin to turn to hate because in the process it will also destroy us. The danger of allowing your love to turn into anger then turn into hatred because you see other people prospering in the world is not just that you're denying them of the opportunity of salvation, but you are destroying your very own soul. Imagine if Christ worked that way. Imagine if Christ looked upon a world full of, of hate and sin and instead of showing love toward us while we were yet sinners, he showed hatred toward us while we were yet sinners. We would all have no hope. But the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, he loved us. He died for us. So we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our minds 
so that we do not look at the world from the way the world looks at it, but the way that Christ looks at the world. Verse 13, but he that shall endure unto the end. If, you, if you're taking notes, if you have a highlighter, please highlight the first, that verse, verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And let me tell you, the gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is most certainly the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But I think one mistake that we often make is we think that, well, all I have to do is preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's it. My job is done. I have nothing else to do. But the gospel of Christ does not just tell you about why you need to change, but it tells you how you need to change. You see, the gospel of Christ gives you a roadmap for what you need to do to not just get salvation, but to go about having sanctification. The gospel that we must carry to the world is not just a message of once upon a time I was saved, but let me show you how I've been changed. Because the world will want what it sees in you. So if it sees change, it will want change. But if you haven't changed, then they have no need to change either. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, for the sake of time, because I have quite a bit more to get through, I, I'm not going to go into depth on what this means. But what I want to say is this. If you have questions after, we, after I finish this message, please see me. See Pastor Powell. Ask for a Bible study. Ask for further clarification. Do your own studying. Do your own reading. Verse 21. Let's pick up on verse 21. For then, so what is saying for then here is he's already talked about wars, rumors of wars, um, people hating one another, the love of many waxing cold, all of those things already happening. It says, for then, after all of that, shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of this world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, highlight that word elect, because the elect there is you, it's me. The elect of God is the church. So in this great tribulation, it's possible that even the elect may not be saved. And we'll talk about that one second. Verse 23, that it, then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, believe it not for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, that they shall deceive the very elect." Why, why am I focusing on this? Why am, I, why am I bringing this up? I want you to read this. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, For then shall be great tribulation. And then he's describing the tribulation. And as he's describing the tribulation, he's saying that the church is going to be here witnessing all of these things. Okay? And he's telling us, he's warning us. There's a reason he's mentioning this. He's giving us a warning. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
So when is this happening, what, what I'm about to read? After, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then, and then, so after the tribulation, all these, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, there's a verse we often read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 19 that talks about the rapture. And it talks about Christ returning in the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when they see Jesus ascending into heaven, he disappears where? When he reaches the clouds. The angels tell them, don't, don't sit here wondering, because the same way you see him leave is the same way you'll see him return, meaning in the clouds. So this is just talking about that moment when Christ is returning in the clouds, at the moment of the rapture. Going back to verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now who again? Who's the elect? The church, the saints. So when is this happening? Immediately after the tribulation of those days will he send his angel to gather together his church. Now this phrase that's used here with the great sound of a trumpet is important. Let me give you just a couple other references, and I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to give you them if you want to write them down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 tells us that we would all be changed in the moment that swing the eye at the sound of the last trump. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says that Christ's return is in the clouds and that it is heralded by a trump. Revelation chapter 11, so that was 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And then Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, tells us that his return is at the seventh trumpet, which is the last trumpet in that series. Interestingly, Israel conquered Jericho by walking around the city seven times, blowing the trumpet seven times. In Leviticus, the Day of Atonement is marked by blowing a trumpet during the seventh month. God is nothing if not consistent. This seven here often marks completion, the fulfillment, the bringing together of all things. And how fitting that the return of Christ, the end of the grand plan of what Christ has ordained from the beginning of the world is heralded at the seventh trumpet. Now I know that someone would say at this point, but wait a minute. The Bible also says that no man knoweth the day nor the hour. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about it. And I could go through verse after verse after verse after verse to disprove this logic. But for right now, for the sake of time, let me just stick with the words of Jesus himself. Let's pick back up in verse 32. So we're in chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender... And putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Okay, pause right there for a moment. 
It says, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. So, Scripture is telling us very clearly. When you see these signs happening, you know that it is near. You may not know the exact moment. You may not know the exact time that it's going to take place. But you know it is very close because you've seen all the signs. But if you don't know what the signs are, you can't know that it's near. You can't know that it's at the door if you don't know what you're looking for. Imagine going to an airport and being just told you're going to pick up a man from United Airlines. And that's all the information you get. You don't know what day to go to the airport. You don't know what the man looks like. You don't know what time to pick him up at. So are you just going to stand at the airport day after day, blindly looking, hoping that you see the right individual? Right? What would happen eventually? Eventually you would get tired and say, well, I guess he's never coming. I'm just going to give up. Church, this is the danger of not knowing, not watching for the signs. Because you see, the Jews in the Old Testament, they also had signs. They had lots of signs. They had lots and lots and lots of prophecies concerning exactly where Jesus was going to be born, how it was going to happen. Uh, uh, the, the, see, all this stuff, they knew about it. But because they did not know, because they did not study the signs, because their heart was not looking for what the Word actually said, instead they were looking for their own perception of Jesus. They were looking for the Jesus that was going to come on the white horse and throw down the governments and rule the kingdoms with a rod of iron. But they totally miss Isaiah 53 that where he says he would first come as a sheep before the slaughter who would stand dumb before his shearer. They missed all the verses that said that he would first come as a shepherd before he would come as a king. Why did they miss Jesus? Because they didn't know the signs of his coming. Here it was God's chosen people who missed it because they were not watching, because they did not know the signs of his coming. Church, let that not be said of us. Let it not be said that this Jesus that we've preached for all these years, we missed because we refused to actually look and study and watch for the signs of his coming. How sad would it be to live our life doing ministry only to miss it in the end because we, we stopped watching, because we resigned ourselves to, well, He's not coming today. I guess he's not coming tomorrow. It's not happening in my lifetime. You say that can't happen, but Paul talked about this. Some Jews came to Paul and said, look, all our forefathers, they're dead. They've been asleep in the ground. Where, when's this going to happen? Paul constantly had to remind them about this. Okay, I'm getting a little sidetracked here. Let's, let's get back to, our, back to our text. Verse 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation, so which generation is this talking about? Because what some people will say is, this generation is referencing who Jesus was talking to. But that makes no sense. Because what it says in verse 33 is, when you shall see all these things, know that it is even at the door. Have we seen all the things that have been mentioned yet? No, we haven't seen this. Have we seen the sun darken, the moon not give her light, the stars fall from heaven, the powers of heaven be shaken? We haven't seen that. So it can't be at the door. We, we, that generation could not have been the generation that was spoken of. But it says when this generation that sees these signs, it says this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Why did he put that verse in there? He's letting you know if I said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. 
This earth is temporary. These kingdoms are temporary. The buildings that I mentioned, that Jesus mentioned in the back, in the beginning of this chapter, they're temporary. But my words are everlasting. So if I said it will come to pass, it will come to pass. Verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, it's at this moment that some would say, aha, you see, Jesus said, no man knoweth the day. So don't worry about it. But Jesus immediately follows up that statement with verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also come the coming of the Son of Man be. What a great parallel. When we look at this, this reference to the days of Noah, we often talk about the people, right? That they were drinking, giving in marriage, they were doing life. But there's another side to the story too. There was the story about what was Noah doing. Noah was watching. Noah was preparing. Noah was obeying the voice of God. So you have two stories. You have the story of those that were just doing life, not watching, and they were overtaken by the flood. But you have the story of Noah and his family who were watching, who were looking for the signs that Jesus had mentioned. And when the flood came, they were ready. They were saved because they were watching. Verse 40 says, Then shall two be in the field, then one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the meal, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He picks up in verse, or chapter 25, starting in verse 1. And what I think is one of the most powerful and gut-checking parables that he tells. In verse 1 of chapter 25, he says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. This word virgin is very intentional. It represents purity. It represents the church is what it's representing. A bride which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. No oil means no light. No light means no ability to watch. So five of them were wise because they were prepared and watching. Five of them were foolish because they were not watching. But the wise, verse 4, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. 
And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. In my mind, because I'm a very visual individual, in my mind, this, this is how I play it out of my head. You have 10 church members, 10 churches, 10 cities, it doesn't matter. You have 10 saints of God. Five of them were not only saved, but they were also watching. Their lamps were full. Their, their eyes were set toward the prize. They were watching. The other five were also virgins. They were also doing ministry. They were also teaching Bible studies. They were also doing all the things, but they were not watching. They were not looking for the coming of Christ. And then when that trumpet blows, everyone hears the trumpet. The Bible says that's why the men and the captains of the earth mourn. Everyone hears the trumpet. But only the five who were watching were ready to go. The other five had to scurry about looking. Oh, is this it? Is this the sign? What do I do now? What, what they said I was going to leave before. What's happening? And the door shuts. And the Lord says, I never knew you. How sobering is that? And listen, that's not me trying to bring an indictment against anyone here or any other person. That's me taking a warning unto myself. Saying, Jeremy, don't get so caught up and doing all this other stuff that you forget to watch. That you forget that the whole purpose of all of this is to be a, a, a bride ready for the bridegroom. It's not for me to get a title. It's not for me to get a pat on the back. It's not for me to get money. It's not for me to get degrees upon degrees. It's for me to be ready for when the bridegroom returns. This word watch comes from a Greek word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, that simply means to hold the mind towards or to be in constant attention to something. To constantly be looking. To have your mind fixed on the prize. Jesus is literally saying that we must keep our minds fixed on the signs of his coming so that we do not become like the five foolish virgins. Going to church but oblivious to the impending return of the bridegroom. In Luke's account of the same, same passage, he uses a, a slightly different phrase, and I want to address it. Because if you don't read things in context, you might seem very confused or, or seem like Jesus is contradicting himself. Listen to what Luke 21, verse 34 through 36 says. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with suffering and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day comes upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Now you read that phrase, watch and pray so that you may escape. And people say, well, there, see, Jesus said we can escape. We don't have to be here for it. We can escape. But you have to know what is, what's actually being said here. 
This, so let's look at verse 36. This phrase, that you may be accounted worthy, would more literally or directly word for word be translated as that you may have the strength. The phrase, it's, it's a big uh, Hebrew word and it encompasses this whole phrase. And it means to prevail against, to overpower, or to get the upper hand, to go through. To escape means to flee out, to flee away, or to escape through. So let me reread this now that we understand what these words actually mean. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. Or you could say, be careful that you aren't so caught up in sin or even the cares of everyday life that you were caught by surprise. Verse 35 and 36, For a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape. Or you could say, pray that you have the strength to endure, to pass through, to escape all the things that shall come to pass before the return of Jesus. Now let me just give you a couple closing points. And I'm going to try to get through these quickly. i got six minutes. Here we go. Number one, the point of this message is not to bring fear because we will be here during the tribulation. It's not the purpose. In fact, the point of this message is to bring clarity to our purpose. Jesus says during the close of chapter 25 that when he returns, he will give reward to those that took care of those in need and punish those who neglected those in need. You see, church, we have a royal purpose and it's not defined by this world. The fear that is constantly being peddled um, by this world is not what defines us. But in fact, Daniel 9, or 11, 32, and 33 tells us, and I'm going to paraphrase, they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. But it means that you have to understand what's going on if you are to instruct many. Verse 2, or uh, point 2, this brings me to my second closing point. We are called to instruct others so that, as Jude says, we may pull them from the fire. Meaning that ignorance to the scripture about the end times is not only wrong, but it is an abdication of your purpose. We must view this world from God's perspective, not the world's perspective. But we cannot do that if we do not know what the Bible says about a second coming. Finally, the primary reason many people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is simply out of fear. Fear of what the tribulation hold. But I remember in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus saying, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me wrap all this up by saying uh, uh, two, two paragraphs that I stole from a, a post that uh, Chris Kahn posted from Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian who lived during World War II. And she was in a concentration camp because she was a sympathizer and a helper of the Jews. She's got a lot of great books out there. You should, you should check some of them out. But listen to what she says. She says that there are some among us teaching that there will be no tribulation. That Christians will be able to escape all of this. 
These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter days. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on across the world. I have been in countries where the saints are already suffering terrible persecution. In China, the Christians were told, don't worry. Before the tribulation comes, you will be translated. You will be raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop from China say, sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, how to stand and not faint. Interestingly, I feel like Jesus said, it's him that endures to the end. The same shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58 says this. How is it? How is it that we can endure? How is it that we can go through all of the tribulation? It's simply this. Because the tribulation is not the end. The tribulation is not our defining moment. The tribulation is not what the church needs to focus on. But 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's all stand. Church, we can endure because we know that Christ has already overcome the world. The power of death is in sin, but Christ overcame sin and arose from the grave. We can live because we have a Savior who is alive. Church, don't be fearful. I'm not saying there won't be tribulation because the Bible tells us there will be. I'm not saying there won't be persecution, but what I'm saying is my God is bigger. My God has already overcome the world. My God has already made a way for me and for you. Let us watch. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you right now for your word, O oh God, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall not pass away. That when tribulation comes and this world is in shambles, oh God, that we would be strong, that we would do exploits, that we, we would truly be that light in a lost and dying world, oh God. I pray for strength for the church, that we would endure all things. I pray for wisdom for the church, that we would watch for all things, oh God. Let us not be deceived by a world that tells us to do whatever we want. Let us not be deceived by a world that says that we have no purpose, oh God, but we we know our purpose is defined in you and you alone, oh God. And most of all, let us rejoice because we know our Savior lives. We know that he is going to return. We know that he is going to bring us to new life and abundance therein. I thank you, Jesus. I give you all the glory and all the honor in your precious name. Amen. I ask that you take this message with you. 
I don't expect you to, to remember everything I said. I don't expect you to know everything about the end time in one message. But I, what I hope is that you see the importance of why it is so critical that we can't just ignore the parts of the Bible we think are hard or scary or that we don't like. But we need all of the word. For all of it is profitable. For doctrine, reproof, correction. So that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, take a 10-minute break. Be back for some worship.